0: You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. For the next three episodes, we're going to dive into a topic that's been touched on a few times throughout this podcast. And if you consume any form of mountain bike media, you've probably heard about mountain bike access in respect to wilderness areas in the United States. The reason I've skimmed over this topic on a few occasions is that it's deserving of its own episode. And after sitting down and recording a number of interviews, I quickly realized that one episode just isn't going to cut it. So my goal for this episode is to get everyone up to speed on bikes in wilderness, the history, how it's affected local trail associations across the United States, and what some of them are doing about it. Following that, we'll be hearing from two experts on the topic. First, Eric Melson, government relations at IMBA, and second, Ted Stroll, president of the Sustainable Trails Coalition. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 25 of Frontlines. The Wilderness Act was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson on September 3rd, 1964, and it took eight years and over 60 drafts to make that happen. The act did and still does an amazing job of defining wilderness. And I think it's important to hear that definition word for word. Now, one thing I will say is gender neutrality was not considered in 1964 when this act was written. Section 1C of the Wilderness Act reads this, quote, a wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth And its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. An area of wilderness is further defined to mean in this act an area of undeveloped federal land retaining its primeval character and influence without permanent improvements or human habitation which is protected and managed so as to preserve its natural conditions and which one, generally appears to have been affected primarily by the forces of nature with the imprint of man's work substantially unnoticeable. Two, has outstanding opportunities for solitude or a primitive and unconfined type of recreation. Three, has at least 5,000 acres of land or is of sufficient size as to make practicable its preservation, and use in an unimpaired condition, and four, may also contain ecological, geological, and other features of scientific, educational, scenic, or historic value. It's poetic, and not just for a piece of government content, but as a piece of prose. And if you're like me, you'll want to know that untrammeled means not restricted or hampered, and as Eric Melson will even define in episode 26 as meaning unshackled. In 1964, when the Wilderness Act was signed, mountain bikes were non-existent. And there's much argument as to when mountain biking actually started and where and who is credited with its creation, but the important dates are this. In early 1977, Joe Breeze created the very first mountain bike, known as the Breezer. And in 1981, Specialized created the Stump Jumper, which was the very first mass-produced mountain bike. Essentially, mountain biking was officially given to the people in the late 70s early 80s. Wilderness areas, although designated by Congress, are managed by a number of federal agencies or land managers, in fact four to be specific. The National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Land Management, also known as the BLM. The National Park Service manages 40% of wilderness areas, and that's more than each of the other three agencies. And it's actually most of their land. 56% of national parks is made up of wilderness. In a close second is the U.S. Forest Service, with 33% of wilderness. And the other major land manager in the U.S. that many trail associations work with is the BLM, or Bureau of Land Management. But they only manage 8% of wilderness areas. In 1977, the Forest Service handed down a regulation that stated bikes were not allowed in wilderness. Then in 1981, despite this regulation, it was up to the individual district rangers to decide which trails bikes were permitted on and which they weren't. Somewhere between 1983 and 84, it was decided that bikes weren't allowed on any trails in wilderness. Now here's what the Wilderness Act has to say on the topic of prohibition of certain uses. Section 4C states, quote, except as specifically provided for in this Act and subject to existing private rights, there shall be no commercial enterprise or no permanent road within any wilderness area designated by this Act, and except as necessary to meet the minimum requirements for the administration of the area for the purposes of this Act, including measures required if emergencies involving the health and safety of persons within the area. There shall be no temporary road, no use of motor vehicles, motorized equipment or motor boats, no landing of aircraft, no other form of mechanical transport, and no structure or installation within any such area. And the wording or even word that needs to be highlighted there is mechanical and mechanical transport to be specific. What does that mean? And motorized has been explicitly defined as part of a prohibition, but the question that is asked and continues to be argued over is, are mountain bikes mechanical transport? And just like the U.S. Constitution, the Wilderness Act is left for us to interpret. And more specifically, it's up to land managers to interpret, create policy, and enforce those policies as law. But... And this can be a touchy topic in America. Just like the U.S. Constitution, amendments can also be made. What's interesting is that the Wilderness Act has only been amended once, and the Constitution has been amended a total of 27 times. So there's a precedence for a change to the Wilderness Act itself. And what the Sustainable Trails Coalition is attempting to do is not change the Wilderness Act itself, but to return the power to individual district rangers in the case of the Forest Service to determine which individual trails are or aren't appropriate for bikes. Something that should be noted is that the vast majority of wilderness areas, from a mountain biking standpoint, and to put it bluntly, suck. We aren't talking about flowy, buff, alpine trails. We're talking about raw, rough, and challenging to walk on. So when it comes to allowing bikes and wilderness, it's not an argument for all trails or even all wilderness areas, just the trails that are appropriate for riding. A land manager like the BLM or Forest Service can designate an area as proposed wilderness or as a wilderness study area. And these areas can certainly include bike trails. And what normally happen is that before these areas are approved by Congress, there's ample time for trail associations and the public to find an alternative. And that's what my first guest has been successful at doing in Washington State. We've heard from Yvonne Kraus before. For those of you who may not remember, she's the executive director of the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance. Hi, Yvonne. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me back, Brent.
0: Has Washington State lost many trails to proposed wilderness and uh, and future wilderness expansion?
1: Uh, there have been some trails that have been lost to wilderness. Uh, a lot of the trails that were lost were with the early wilderness designations before mountain biking was uh, significant in volume in Washington State. Uh, but there have been some recent wilderness proposals that we have coordinated with land managers on. Um, and with conservation organizations that have lost a few miles of uh, trail.
0: You know, in the news, we see uh, communities that are losing massive amounts of 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 uh, of trails. And you know, there's examples in montana of of one community losing over a hundred miles of of trail. You know what's what's the process for evergreen uh, to approach? proposed wilderness uh and and its effects on on mountain bike trails that that has only uh, caused you know a couple miles of trails to be lost
1: yeah um well so the process question uh, it's a it's a lengthy process taking several years but I'll try to summarize what our approach has been so um that has allowed us to be successful in avoiding a huge number of miles to be lost For the most part, this was my predecessor, Glenn Glover, um, as the executive director at Evergreen, worked very hard to build strong relationships with the conservation groups. Um, And when I joined Evergreen in late 2015, I've been able to build on that and continue to work with them, become educated on the process that have been or has been used in the past. And then we've worked to actually update, improve, and also set some guiding principles for the work that we do together when a new wilderness proposal comes up. Um, So I think A, Evergreen has grown to a significant enough size as a recreation group in Washington state that we are at the table very early when these wilderness proposals come up. And we have worked closely with conservation groups as well as other recreation groups to identify what the impact of those proposed new wilderness areas are on existing mountain bike trails. And then identifying the high-priority trails and working with them to either figure out a different designation, um, looking at permanent protection of the land, but can we do something outside of wilderness? And um, a good example is the Wild and Scenic River designation, for example. Uh, We've been able to implement that in a number of places. We are working on a potential national monument designation in a different area of the state, Right now, um, but we've come up with some strong guiding principles with the conservation and recreation groups to evaluate the impact on mountain bike trails, generate an understanding that the mountain bike user is still underserved in terms of access to trail mileage in Washington state and therefore should not be negatively impacted by these plants, and then redrawing the wilderness lines and boundaries as proposed to help maintain the priority trail for mountain bikers, uh, ensuring that they are not lost. And in doing so, we've been able to also let some trails go and assist the conservation groups with a significant area of wilderness that we feel good about and we can support. So there's been a good balance here. And a set of wilderness principles that now guide all of our all of our discussions.
0: Yeah, so a healthy give and take is is important.
1: Yes, I think we have built such a strong relationship with the conservation groups. We receive their help. They co-write our our, they support our grants with letters of support. Uh, We do the same for them. Um, Having them as a partner in furthering the recreation causes in our state is more important than trying to you know, directly change the wilderness um, rules and regulations, the working together piece. And one of our strong allies and good counsel to me, Tom Uniak from Washington Wild calls it the Washington way. Um, We've just been able to make that work here in Washington state, understanding that in other areas of the country, based on how much drill there is available to ride and what those wilderness proposals do to mountain biking access, that doesn't always fly, but it's gone very well and successfully here in Washington.
0: So the example that I'd like to focus on is the the Coville National Forest. And and so it's being proposed as as future wilderness. And what trails would be lost if that were to happen?
1: So there are a number of alternatives out for the forest management plan revision. Alternative P, which is currently the preferred alternative, we would potentially lose access to the trails on the south end of the Kettle Crest. So Bald Mountain, White Mountain are currently still proposed wilderness, and so is a trail network uh, in the northeast corner of our state called Abercrombie Mountain that's also still proposed. It's a very scenic ride. It's a unique ride, not a ride that a lot of people do right now, but certainly a ride that has a uniqueness factor that we don't want to see lost and once it's lost there's no way you can replace those kind of subalpine and high alpine riding areas uh, those are the areas that get protected right so um, those are the two areas in the colville national forest that are of extreme importance to us right now
0: and so what's what's the solution to preventing any trail loss in this area
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and it builds on what we were talking about. So building those partnerships, we've been meeting um, for the past two years with local recreation groups, local elected officials in the Colville, Kettle Crest, Kettle Falls, and Republic area to identify the local wishes for the area, identify what types of permanent protection would be appropriate and suitable, and is wilderness really the right answer for a region that is so remote and um, receives low recreation use, um, but also is very subject to fires every year, and uh, previous fire damage has caused a lot of the trees to come down. There's a lot of just lodgepole pine, they are matchsticks, and every year there's so much blowdown that the trails close if volunteers can't move in there with chainsaws and do significant maintenance efforts. So we've worked with all of those parties locally and then also in the Puget Sound area working with the larger conservation orgs who are behind designating or achieving that permanent protection in the Colville National Forest. We have started conversations about special recreation interest areas and then potentially redesignating from wilderness to national monument. We've made a lot of progress and we were able to put in a very uh, detailed letter In terms of the wilderness areas that we can support as evergreen as the mountain bike community but then also strong recommendations that the area south of the crest is not lost to mountain biking and that's really the key sticking point is that south area of the kettle crest Uh, the conservation organizations have already realized that the north end of the crest is much more difficult to designate it's more popular the real challenge in the colville national forest particularly the kettle crest is that The high alpine mountain bike experience that's unparalleled, if you ask me anywhere, is right along the crest, right? So there's no way to cherry stem or redraw boundaries when that trail allows you to ride from the pass, from Sherman Pass, all the way to the Canadian border. Um, So cherry stemming and redrawing boundaries is not an option. So what do we do? How do we permanently protect the land? And yet prevent that wilderness designation that would shut out mountain bikes.
0: I want to go back and and focus on something that, that you said early on there. But before I do that, just can you explain what cherry stemming is?
1: Cherry stemming is the idea that you can draw a wilderness boundary along a trail and exclude the trail itself from wilderness. So you choose a buffer. Usually it's 300 feet or so alongside the trail and the wilderness ends and allows the trail corridor to be designated something else um we did this in the olympic national forest for example where um, we were able to designate a trail corridor itself as a wild and scenic river and then the wilderness surrounds the trail but the uses on the trail um, have a different designation than wilderness
0: the other thing that you mentioned was uh by having recreationists in this area, uh, they're helping with the maintenance of of the trails and and so land managers rely and and there's a partnership there when we allow for recreation because as recreationalists we do maintain our our own trails. so there is some uh receptiveness uh, for maintaining that recreation in this area for that that reason
1: right and In the Kettle Crest, again, it's an area that's quite remote and receives low use by all um, hikers, equestrians, bikers. It is just about to be discovered. It's just a gorgeous area. It's remote. It's beautiful. All of those groups put in hundreds of volunteer hours to assist the Forest Service with a significant backlog on those trails. As I mentioned before, previous fire damage has really had a huge impact on the trail quality and also on annual blowdown. So we are all needed to help maintain those trails. Evergreen does an annual trip out there. About 30 to 40 volunteers go out and camp at uh, Jungle Hill Campground right off of Sherman Pass. And from there, we maintain trails, collaborating with the Forest Service. Um, Just this past July, we were out. We're all needed in order to keep those trails open. And uh, we rode at the 2016 Kettle Fest at Abercrombie and ran into a group of local equestrians doing work at Silver Creek. And they were very concerned about the potential wilderness designation, um, very opposed to that designation coming to their area because they need the chainsaw access. Now, to be fair, I should mention that you can still get chainsaw permission to work in the wilderness. It can be done. It is just more cumbersome. It takes time. It takes paperwork coordination. And so it's seen as a major barrier to get volunteers to go out and to mobilize larger groups.
0: Yeah. And and that's an interesting piece to to this because wilderness does allow equestrians and and so with these equestrian groups it is the the chainsaw it seems to be kind of the the sticking point and it's great i mean we need more partners in this and and equestrians are a huge partner when it comes to to these backcountry trails but is there a risk of maybe equestrian groups potentially trying to to change the chainsaw laws around wilderness and, and then we kind of losing them as a partner or, or, you know, is that just not a possibility?
1: I don't think so. I haven't thought about that question, Brent. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't believe so personally. I think um, that again, it's region specific in the Colville national forest. Again, because of the remoteness, the length of the trails um, you're going into the back country, Quite far, and with the equestrian population in general aging up quite quickly, they are no longer able to do any of that maintenance with hand saws. Um, I have not heard about any lobbying by the backcountry horsemen to try and get the chainsaw rules changed. Mostly what I heard for the Colville was local opposition, just because there's a fear that within less than a year, the trails that they've been maintaining would be lost to blow down erosion. You know, there's a heavy snowpack there every year, and they, again, they put in hundreds of hours to open them up, but without power tools, it would be very hard to do that.
0: Yeah, and I guess the other thing to think about is—is is we know firsthand that that changing wilderness is extremely difficult, and uh, and, and there's
1: that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so whether that's even a possibility is is something different. So, well, Ivana, I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I think uh, you you bring a really interesting perspective to this discussion, and uh, and it's exciting to kind of see what Evergreen is doing and, and see that that there's some precedents for success. Thank you, Brent. The Wilderness designation is an incredibly strong way to protect wild spaces. And if we as mountain bikers want to consider ourselves to be environmentalists, then something like the Wilderness Act needs to be celebrated. Avon mentioned working with conservation groups, and I'm a firm believer in the benefits of working with other user groups. But far too often when we read stories about mountain bikers fighting for access, They're pitted against conservationists. And I asked Ian Jones, president of the Southwest Montana Mountain Bike Association in Bozeman, if he thought that recreation and conservation are two sides that will forever be opposed to each other.
2: No, I don't think that they're opposed at all. I think that there's definitely a way to move forward that can fix that. There is a bill that that was introduced and will likely be reintroduced at some point called the Recreation Not Red Tape Bill out of Oregon. And that's a really good bill to pay attention to because it essentially establishes recreation areas and forces the Forest Service to go through the same process that they do for wilderness for recreation Um, and eventual congressional designation of those recreation areas would protect it indefinitely, just like wilderness. And that's something where we could partner with wilderness organizations. And instead of fighting them tooth and nail for each and every trail, we can say, Hey, this area really deserves to be a recreation area. Will you jump on board with us? And more than likely they will say, yeah, we want to preserve that landscape indefinitely too. As it is, I think that working with these conservation organizations is highly effective um, when we are able to collaborate with them. We usually come out with some very good proposals.
0: And although a group like the Sierra Club is opposed to what the Sustainable Trails Coalition is trying to do by allowing bikes in wilderness, that doesn't mean that they aren't against mountain biking in general. Here's Ryan Dunphy, up Community Manager at the Sierra Club. One thing that I think is super important that folks know that what the Sierra Club does do that that I think the bike community should be psyched on is that they're often uh, advocating for land protections that aren't
3: wilderness. So we
0: have at least a dozen campaigns going on right now trying to promote and defend the National Monument. Almost all of those, from my understanding, include um, opportunities for mountain biking in them. Now, something that has further confused the topic, and, and we touched on it a bit with Yvonne, is that wilderness comes in a few different forms. Here's Ian Jones of the Southwest Montana Mountain Bike Association again.
2: We've got three different versions of wilderness in Montana. Um, We have actual wilderness, which is congressionally designated wilderness. And then we've got wilderness study areas, which have to be kept to a 1977 level of activity and use. Um, And then we've got recommended wilderness areas that are being managed as wilderness by the Forest Service.
0: And the first one Ian mentioned was Congressional Designated Wilderness. And that's all of the current wilderness areas, 759 in total. These are easily found on a map and 54 of them go back to the introduction of the Wilderness Act in 1964. Wilderness study areas are not included in the National Wilderness Preservation System until they're approved by Congress. But the third one is recommended wilderness. And I'm willing to bet that most of the time wilderness is discussed in mountain bike media, this is the one they're referring to. Now, Ian mentioned that these areas are managed like wilderness by the Forest Service, and this is specific to only a few of the 10 Forest Service regions. The biggest example of this is Region 1, which contains Montana and Idaho. What Region 1 of the Forest Service has begun to do is enforce recommended wilderness as if it's congressionally approved wilderness. Instead of the usual political discourse that allows groups to find compromise, like what Evergreen is doing, wilderness is in essence created overnight. And trails that were once ridden by a community are no longer open to mountain bikes. And no place has felt this more than Montana. Here's Ian again.
2: It's a really painful loss for Montana mountain bikers because all of the places that we really appreciate and enjoy are generally over. 8,000 feet, and that is the primary focus of these um, recommended wilderness, wilderness study areas, and actual wilderness.
0: In a small community in Montana is a very small IMBA chapter known as the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists, and they've felt the effects of trail loss firsthand. For the last guest of the episode, I'd like to welcome back Lance Paischer, president of the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists. Hi Lance, thanks for joining me.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: How much trail loss has the Bitterroot backcountry cyclists experienced over the last uh, few years?
3: Well, I think to a degree. I mean, locally, we've lost 180 miles, but the other natural forest nearby, which is the Beaverhead, we lost 350 miles there. And up farther north, near a, uh, above Calisthen, almost in Canada, there's an area called the Tin Lakes Wooden Estate area where we're losing another 80 miles. These are all areas that we ride. Wow. About half the trail losses in recommendable wilderness and the other half is in the wilderness study areas. We have two wilderness areas. One is the sapphire the sapphires and the other is the blue joint wilderness study area.
0: Gotcha. This is not congressionally approved wilderness that this trail losses has been uh, caused by. No And what action has your chapter taken to to try to save these trails or, or get these trails back?
3: This has actually been going on for us for, for 10 years, for when they first started their travel plan. And the travel plan, they announced that they were going to close the trails in the recommended wilderness, which was about half the trail loss at that time. That was primarily our impetus to form a a, a club locally. We felt we we'd have a stronger voice as a group than as just individuals. Over the 10 years, when you have these forest plans and these travel plans, you have to comment on them. You can't just be, not be involved. You need to comment on the other travel plans. So we made our comments. And that was back in actually 2006, 2007. And it took 10 years for them to actually decide to implement the plan. I think it was like 2011. Eventually, they came out with the first draft. And at that point, they decided to they would add-on. All the trails in the wilderness areas would also be closed. So then we had needed to comment more about those. Then they finally released their final plan. At that point, if you ever want to consider litigating, you got to Follow your objections with the Forest Service. So we so we went through all of that, made our comments, made our objections at each level. At, at each time, the Forest Service says, no, w- w- we're doing it right. Your objections don't, don't have any merit. So they, so eventually, last year, they closed all the trails to us. At that point, we we really felt that, especially given everything else that was happening in Montana with what almost 800 miles of trails lost or, or potentially going to be lost over the last 10 years, we felt that we needed to draw a line in the sand and not just accept this. So we got together with some of the other groups, in this case, a snowmobile group and the local motorized ATV and dirt bikes to file a lawsuit against the trail closures.
0: Now, this is certainly the the first uh, mountain bike group that's done that, and definitely the first IMBA chapter that's that's done this. But uh, do you know if there's other motorized groups that have done something similar in the past?
3: Motorized groups have been involved in litigation quite a bit over the last 10, 20 years. And, and the wilderness people on both sides, both wilderness people and wilderness groups have both filed numerous lawsuits over management of these, these areas.
0: Hmm. And And is there success in those other cases? Like, has this worked out uh, for them? Is there a precedence for this?
3: I guess first I should back up to say what success means. <laughs> 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 when it comes to this sort of litigation, basically, what you're, what you're saying is that the Forest Service did their NEPA wrong. NEPA is the National Environmental Protection Act. And, the, and, they, and they need to follow certain rules when they perform their environmental impact statement. So basically, when you say you win, the, the, means the judge says that they did their NEPA wrong. And, then, and they need to go back, go back and reevaluate how they did their study. And, and, that, and that when they did re- the study, they, they may or may not change their mind. Mm. And then it comes back with the judge saying, "Yeah, you, you, the toes the are going to be open. Everything is good."
0: And and what's been the general acceptance of of the community? Are are people in agreement with this, or or is, has there been some backlash with, within the community itself?
3: I think most people in Montana who are mountain bikers are, have been very supportive of what we're doing. I have had backlash from friends who are more wilderness oriented who are saying how can you ally with with motorized groups they're the they're the devil it's like well they may be the devil or not the devil but they're they're seeing trouble travel loss and they want to work with us whereas groups like the wilderness groups are (laughs) closing trails to us so i mean you find your friends where you can sometimes
0: and then beyond montana what's what's been the the general acceptance from outside of montana and within the the greater mountain bike community Everyone I know has been very supportive of
3: it. What's happening in Montana is trying to spread throughout the Forest Service. So I think anyone who mountain bikes is trying to realize, boy, that this isn't just a Montana issue. This is a national issue that we're having these areas basically being managed as wilderness without any congressional authorization.
0: And so, like, what was the linchpin to all of this? Like, was there. You know, a conflict did, did a mountain biker run into a, a hiker, or is there has there been substantial erosion to, to trails? You know, directly linked to to mountain bikers. Like, what caused the Forest Service to to take this action?
3: It's not about impact. They did the study. The Forest Service admits there's no evidence of impact by mountain bikes on any of these areas. It's not, there's no user conflicts. The trails aren't being destroyed. What it comes down to is I actually like to quote what came from the record of Decision, which is what basically their final statement on things. Allowing uses that do not conform to wilderness character creates a constituency that will have a strong propensity to oppose recommendation of any subsequent wilderness designation legislation. Management actions that create this operating environment will complicate the decision process for Forest Service Managers, members of Congress. It is important that, that, that when the wilderness recommendations are made to Congress that they be unencumbered with issues that are exclusive to the wilderness allocation decision. Congress is not the appropriate forum in, in which to d- debate travel management decisions. So basically these bills are being closed, not out of impact, not because we're overusing them, but because the Forest Service doesn't want us to, <laughs> basically doesn't want us on the land because we might advocate for something other than wilderness designation.
0: Yeah, so essentially shutting shutting out mountain bikers and then in that in that 10 year span by the time it actually these areas go to Congress to be voted on uh, that, that the, we've all kind of given up and, uh, and forgotten about these trails
3: right basically they have taken the position and they're basically advocating along with the wilderness society and those groups that there should be wilderness and the goal is to marginalize our our voice in the political process. The idea that Congress is not the place to discuss land use decisions is ridiculous. Yeah, that's what Congress is for. That's where we have those decisions. So all these lands, yeah, I agree. They are they are fantastic areas. They they are primitive. They are spectacular. They they should be quiet. But the same areas are also great areas for backcountry riding. In some cases, they've great places for snowmobiling. As dysfunctional as, as Congress is and our government is these days, that's still the venue to decide and to make those trade-offs, decide, yeah, this may be wilderness, but it's also mountain biking and maybe snowmobiling. That's what Congress is for, and Forest Service is just trying to shortcut all of that and saying it's wilderness or nothing. We don't want anyone else to even consider the possibility that there are other uses that maybe also be appropriate.
0: Mm. Well, well, Lance, uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with me. I, I appreciate it. Well, thanks for the call. The big question in all of this is why aren't all mountain bike organizations backing the Sustainable Trails Coalition's aim to change the Wilderness Act to allow for bikes? And every mountain bike organization stands to benefit if STC is successful. But in the meantime, and in case they aren't successful, then IMBA and Evergreen have an obligation to find alternatives. And in the world of advocacy, it can be challenging to hedge your bets. And to continue with the analogy of the racetrack, when an organization picks its horse, then they need to back it completely. But thankfully, the average mountain biker gets to celebrate in either strategy's success, and it's important to realize that, as an example, just because IMBA isn't officially supporting the STC, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't benefit from its success. It's just not IMBA's horse. So in a lot of ways, by having all these different strategies from various organizations, mountain biking as a whole has hedged its bets. And that's something I think we need to realize. IMBA, STC, Evergreen, The Bitterroot, all these different organizations, they're not fighting each other. They're just going about the end goal in a different way. And there's benefits and negatives to both. And if one is successful over the other, yes, it has negative implications, But at the end of the day, our goal is to have access to mountain biking and to maintain access to mountain bike trails. And so is there a bad way to go about that? That's a big question. And one we're gonna explore a little bit more in the next two episodes. Next episode, we're gonna be hearing from Eric Melson. He's with IMBA and is focused on government relations. Eric is going to fill us in on some backstory, including just what happened in Boulder White Cloud. And he'll provide us with some more detail on what the recreation not red tape bill is, as well as explaining a bit more on what national monuments are and its possible role in mountain bike access. After my interview, Yvonne Kraus mentioned that she'd be more than happy to share Evergreen's wilderness principles and the key criteria that they've developed with various conservation organizations. Along with links to Evergreen, you'll find Yvonne's email in the show notes as well. And in addition, there's a link to the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclists, a specific link on how you can donate to them, links to the Sierra Club and the Southwest Montana Mountain Bike Association. I've also included a link to the Wilderness Act itself. And like always, you'll find a link to support the show via PayPal. This show does cost money to run. I'm not referring to my own time. If you manage your organization's website, then you'll know that hosting comes with a price tag, and audio takes up a lot of space. Thank you once again to all of my guests Yvonne Krauss, Ian Jones, Ryan Dunphy, and Lance Peischer. You can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to FrontlinesMTB at gmail.com. Music is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.